Today's scripture comes from Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 3, and verses 22 through 31. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the fire of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. God, our Father, we're so grateful that we can gather together today, that we can open the scriptures because we know that in the scriptures we find a revelation of your nature and character, how you've called us to live, the way you've called us to be. And we ask you that you would help us to take what is in your word and apply it to our hearts today that it might be evident in the work of our hands and in everything that we do in our lives, that we love you, that we have been loved by you, and that you might be glorified in everything that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are looking at what the book of Proverbs says about our work. We're talking about the integration of our faith and our work. We're talking about our jobs and our work. We're talking about our jobs and our faith. The general question that we need to ask is, how does our faith inform our work? How does it inform the jobs that we do, the things that we give ourselves to? The specific question is, what does Proverbs have to say about this? We're in a series of messages through this summer, looking at a number of different topics from all over the book of Proverbs. So today we're going to talk about the integration of our faith and our work. Now, research says that the average person will spend 90,000 hours of their life at work. You did not gasp as you should have. That is a large amount of hours that we are going to spend in our work. And that does not include your education, getting groceries, making meals, cleaning up. It doesn't include your laundry and your yard work and your banking and your paperwork or raising children, which are all forms of work. So it's 90,000 hours plus, 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 plus. And if you're going to spend that much time doing something, it seems to me that it would be vital that we do some careful thinking about why we're doing it, the way that we're doing it, and how we are doing it. I've been talking about the integration of faith and work since uh, before I uh, was a pastor. So back when I had a real job, I, I was talking about faith and work. I loved reading about it, learning about it, because it was something that was so practical to, to be informing your daily life by the truth of 
the faith that we hold and the scriptures that we see? How does it inform everything that we do? And so I've always enjoyed reading about this. And so I'm going to recommend a few books. Um, I've recommended some of these before. Every Good Endeavor by Keller and Elsdorf, uh, Kingdom Calling by Amy Sherman, The Gospel Goes to Work by Graves and Work by Doriani. They're all good. They're in no particular order. Uh, those are my favorite four. There are other books out there. I'm sure if you have some favorite ones, send them to me. I love this topic. Uh, what I'm going to say today, I'm going to lean on all four of those and others. And um, since I know that this is a topic that many of you wrestle with, you, you ask yourself the question, like, what does my Sunday morning have to do with my Monday morning? And if you struggle with that, I just want to say, I think it's important that you get informed, that you actually wrestle through that. You're going to spend 90,000 hours plus, plus, plus wrestling through that, or you can wrestle through it now and then figure out uh, ways that, that, that your faith will inform the work that you give yourself to on a daily basis. And so today what we're going to do, we're going to look at it like this. We're going to talk about why we work. We're going to talk about the way we work. And we're going to talk about how we work. Why we work, the way we work, and how we work. The first thing, why we work. What do I mean by that? Well, some of you go, I work because I need to live somewhere and I have to pay for that. And that is a good reason to work. I just think that it is not the ultimate reason to work. And I want to be able to just elevate your thinking a little bit beyond the necessities of life. A lot of people have a negative view of work. Maybe you don't like your job. Maybe you don't find it fulfilling. Maybe, maybe whatever is going on in your work life. I, I, I want us to think about this from a bigger point of view. It's not something that we have to do. I want us to think about our work as something that we are gifted to do and that we get invited into as we participate God. We get invited to be alongside God working in this world. But that requires us to, maybe, maybe, maybe some of you have a really beautiful view of this. It's very biblical and true. But maybe you have a negative view of work. I, I, that negative view comes from a misunderstanding of the origins of our work. So let's look at the text really quick. Proverbs 8, you heard this read. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand, beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. And then it continues on. We get to verse 22. The Lord possessed me, that is wisdom, possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. We'll stop there. Now, I know it's July, and some of you don't like to think in July. That's fine, students who are here. You go, I don't think in July. Some of you are, are, are Monday to Friday people, and you go, I don't like to think on Sunday either. Well, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of thinking with me. I want us to think through this. This is a poetic personification of wisdom. It's a poetic personification of wisdom. Personification is when you put words in the mouth of an abstract concept, like wisdom. Personification is a poetic device that the author is using here in Proverbs to communicate truth about God from the mouth of Lady Wisdom. Wisdom here is revealing something to us about God, and this is what we need to see. It's saying before creation, wisdom was there. Before there was water and mountains and hills and dust on the earth, wisdom was with God. When everything that was made was being made, Lady Wisdom was evidently there. Wisdom was there alongside God like a master workman, it says later on in the passage, who was God's delight and who was rejoicing before him in all that he was doing. Wisdom was God's delight and was rejoicing in the work that God was doing. And then there was rejoicing by wisdom and delight in the creation that God had made. That's what it says toward the end of our passage. Now, anytime we're reading our Bibles, the first thing we want to ask of any text of Scripture, the first thing we want to ask is, what am I learning 
about the nature and character of God from this passage. That's like our daily work as we grind through the Bible on a plan or we, we do a deep dive on something else. What am I learning about the nature and character of God from this passage of Scripture? So look at verse 22 again. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Okay? At the beginning of his work. What do we learn about God in this passage? Well, he's the creator, but it's his work. God is a worker. This is the why of our work. I want to connect God's work to to, to connect to the why of our work. What was God's work? Well, his work, verse 27, says, When he established the heavens, I was there. Wisdom was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. This is echoing Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation narrative, Psalm 8, other places that we would see the creation being discussed in this kind of way. And envisioning wisdom in this personified way, what it's doing is speaking about the relationality and the delighting and the rejoicing that is going on with God before the creation of anything. And the rejoicing and the delighting Proverbs is talking about was done in light of God's work in creation. This is his work. God is a worker. He worked in creation and he works now in what we would call his providence. It's it's how God is at work maintaining and caring for and providing for the whole of his creation. He worked in the beginning and he is working now. Now there are other creation narratives and accounts from other different world religions and even different ancient Near Eastern thought that would try and create a a structure in thinking about why everything came into being and how everything came into being. And they try to make sense of everything. And I'm not going to go into them in detail, but basically these other narratives tell us that the gods, the small g gods, either worked and then left or they don't work at all. In fact, in these other creation stories, humanity was created to take care of creation Because work itself is beneath the small g gods. In these stories, the work of humanity is not given great honor. In fact, it's actually distorted and it dishonors human work and human participation in God's world. It's just not what Genesis says. I want to contrast that with what it says in Genesis 2. Look at this in verses 1 to 3 and then verse 15. Thus the heavens and earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And then we skip to verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God's work here is the work of a master workman, a craftsman. So the Bible doesn't teach that work is beneath, you know, the the small g gods of the world. The Bible doesn't diminish the value of human labor. The Bible says that our God is a worker and that we as his people are invited by him to participate in his work in the world. Keller and Alsdorf say it like this, in the beginning then God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do, but that was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have 
a more exalted inauguration. And that's why we see that there is a rejoicing and a delight in the work itself. And there is a rejoicing and a delight in the execution of that work and what we have in the created world. We've been created to image God to the whole of his creation. And since God is a worker, we are then called to work. And that is a gift. It's a gift. Your work matters to God because our God is a God who has worked and is working. And you have been created to display him to the whole world around you. A lot of people have a negative view of work. You might be one of them. But that negative view comes from what I believe is a misunderstanding of the origins of our work. Your daily work is ultimately an act of worship to the God who invited you to participate in his work in the world. Now, I'm not saying work is easy. I'm saying it's a gift. I'm saying it's what we're called to do, but I'm not saying it's easy. In fact, we see in Genesis chapter 3, when humanity falls into sin, we see that work is then from that point onward going to become difficult, even painful and thorny but it's still good. The fact that it's difficult does not remove the revelation that it is a good thing. Now, I could say a lot about the difficulty of work, uh, but you need to hear me. The difficulty of our work only comes as a product from our sin, from Genesis 3 onward, where God judges Adam and Eve's rebellion and their desire for self-reliance. Right? They desired to stand on their own apart from him. They rebelled and they said, we know a better way. And from that point onward, work is difficult. That's why Dallas Willard says it like this. He says, work, or labor, is the creation of value that benefits people. It's a kind of knowledge of, work, of God, an exercise of our God-appointed dominion. Work is not the curse of humanity's fall into sin. It's sweat from self-reliance that is a curse. Work done in Jesus' easy yoke is no sweat. We need to resist the temptation to use work to build our self-worth and acceptance and instead seek to enjoy and glorify God in our work. Now, I didn't say it's easy. I just said it's good. Work is good. I think Willard is right. For too long, we've denied the intrinsic value of labor. This is one of the ways that we participate in God's work in the world. Amy Sherman, she's one of the authors I recommended. She said this in her book. She said, human beings are made in the image of God and God is a worker. Human labor has intrinsic value because in it we image or reflect our creator. In her book, she, she quotes a guy named Robert Banks and he gives some categories uh, of what he calls a vocational model. So he, he, looks at, he calls it the vocational model uh, that we look at God as our model for that. So we need to rightly see the work that he does and how our human work, our jobs, the things that we give ourselves to, the callings that we step into, however you want to phrase it, our vocations express these aspects of God's work in the world. He, he says God's labor includes at least these six categories. He gives six. Redemptive work, creative work, providential work, again, caring and sustaining, justice work, it's what is right, Compassionate work, think of the social worker. Revelatory work, this would be scientists and authors and things like that. I have a whole list of jobs that are categorized under each of those six headings. If you're really interested, send me an email, brett at christcitychurch.ca. I'll bounce you back a page of quotes that will go with this. In her book, again, Sherman says, in all these various ways, God the Father continues his creative, sustaining, and redeeming work through our human labor. He continues it through us. 
She says, this gives our work great dignity and purpose. Vocational stewardship starts with celebrating the work itself and recognizing that God cares about it and is accomplishing his purposes through it. This is the why of our work. God is a worker and we're created to reflect him so everything we do in our lives, in our work, in anything else has great value. It's the first thing. You seem absolutely unconvinced by that. The why of our work. It's, it's difficult, but the why is good. Why we work? Number two, the way we work. Proverbs has a lot to say, not just that God is a worker, but it has a lot about the way we are supposed to do it. Uh, wisdom literature in the Bible, uh, Proverbs in particular, is really helpful uh, in helping us uh, to live out the truth of who God is and who we're called to be in the really messy gray areas of life. Stuff where it's like, I need wisdom for this. Bruce Waltke, who I think is uh, one of the foremost experts on the book of Proverbs, he says, wisdom in Proverbs and its correlative term righteousness is all about being rightly related to God, to other human beings, to all creatures, and to the environment. So this is how we see righteousness in the book of Proverbs. It's about our relationship to God and to everything else and everyone around us. This is why Proverbs helps us with the way we work. You could talk about it as the ethics of our work, like the moral substructure that we're, we're, we're conceiving as we do our jobs. But wisdom is not enough, and this is the argument that Waltke is making. I know it might sound counterintuitive to say this when you're preaching out of Proverbs, there's a book of wisdom, but wisdom's not enough. Wisdom deals with an aspect of our knowledge but without some additional help in defining it, it just stays here, it gets lodged in our heads, and it stays in the realm of knowledge. And the Christian faith's not particularly interested with things that you know only. It's about knowing and then getting into our hearts in the sense of believing so that you can align your knowing with your believing, which will then produce fruit in the work of your hands. If you get your head and your heart and your hands all involved, it practically works itself out in everything that you do, including the 90,000 hours in your life that you're gonna spend in your job. So we got to get our thinking right, our believing right, that the work of our hands might extend the truth that we believe and it might be evident for all people around us. See, wisdom deals with aspects of our knowledge. Righteousness deals with what we do with wisdom and knowledge. Okay, wisdom is not inherently good. Let me say it like this. There are lots of really, really smart people who understand how the world works and they take what they understand about how the world works and they do it in a really evil way. Wisdom is not inherently good. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. You can understand how the world works, and if you have a wicked intent or a selfish motive, you can then take what you know, the knowledge that you have, wisdom is the right application of that knowledge, you can apply that in the world. There are lots of people who are very, very wealthy and very, very successful who are very wicked. They're really wise. But their application of their wisdom is done in a way that is not helping people around them. Wisdom's not enough. Bruce Walke says, wisdom in Proverbs needs the correlative term righteousness because wisdom without qualification is a morally neutral term. That's why we spent time in the last few weeks talking about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs tells us that true wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord, a worshiping surrender to God. Biblical wisdom is always coming after the fear of the Lord. So we're not interested in wisdom in general, we're interested in worshipfully applying God's wisdom to our lives and to our work. Okay, this is the way that we work. 
If wisdom and that helpful qualifier righteousness, if that's all about being rightly related to God and then to other human beings, so there's a vertical orientation to it and then a horizontal orientation to it, let me give you a couple of examples of the way I think that works. Proverbs 21, verse 25 says, the desire of the sluggard kills him. That's a great word. For his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but, and there's a contrast here, the righteous gives and does not hold back. The righteous and the wicked are contrasted all the way through Proverbs. Righteousness in Proverbs is about the way we relate to God and people and the whole world, and it's the way we love one another, and it's the way we love our neighbor as ourself. That's righteousness. It's a relational thing. All day long, it says, the wicked work for what's in it for them. Whereas, all day long, the righteous look for ways to be generous with the fruit of their labor. Okay, Here, here's the game changer. A number of years ago, um, probably 15 years ago, I was, I was listening to some preaching on Proverbs that shocked me, and I didn't like it. It confused me, and I was concerned about it, and I thought I need to be more informed. So I actually got a hold of Walkie's book. And it's in that book, and this was, this was a game changer for me in terms of understanding it. He said, the wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. Let me say it again, because I think it's very helpful as we read Proverbs. The wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. Now, I'm going to say it this way with regard to our work. The righteous work for the good of the community, the wicked work for their own glory and gain. The contrast between the righteous and the, and the wicked in Proverbs, it comes down to a person's relationship with the community at large and their interaction with that community. And all of that flows from knowing that our lives belong entirely to God. And that includes our work. There is no part of our life that is not owned by God. You don't have like the normal spiritual part of your life and then like the next day you're like, whoop, now I'm into work life. That's not how it works. Your whole life is informed by who he is and what he has done in relationship to you. Chapter 10, verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. And working for an income is one thing. We work for incomes. But in a sense, that's neutral. Look at the contrast that's here in verse 16. Later on in chapter 10, verse 16, it says, the wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to death. So it's not the income itself that determines good or bad. It's not the, you could say, the volume of wealth that determines the good or the bad. It is the ethical character of the person and the intent of their work that defines whether their wages are going to be used for good or evil. You, you see this. It's, it's, it's neutral. It needs to have righteous or wicked in order to help us understand the orientation of the intent. Okay, on a bigger scale, think of it like this. Proverbs 11.10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Okay, why is that? Well, the righteous cares about the community. When the righteous... Rule, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoice. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. When the righteous are leading and doing well, 
When it's going well with them, the city rejoices because they know that if it goes well with the righteous, that's going to be a benefit to everybody. Whereas, when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Okay? Because the righteous are working for the flourishing of the city and the, work, the, the, the wicked are working for their own gain. Righteous and wicked. This is important in the way that we do our work. Think about it like this. You get offered a new job, right? New job, increase in status, more money, better hours, great perks. You don't have to move anywhere, so you can still be part of Christ City. It's like the dream for you, <laughs> right? It's the dream. You're going to leave your company, so you go to your boss, you give lots of notice because you're a person of high moral character and integrity. You say, here's what's going on. Now, if you leave and there are shouts of gladness, if you leave and there is just sort of a neutral shrug, like, okay, like I guess we get cake on his last day, is that what's happening? I, is that the benefit for everybody? If you say, I'm, I'm leaving here, and no one cares, in fact, they rejoice, that's not great. <laughs> if you leave a company, do you not want them to miss your presence and your partnership with them? You do. Right? When a, when a great team player leaves a team, everybody is brought lower because of it. You go, oh man, she was awesome. It's too bad she had to leave. You feel that. You feel that in your workplace. You feel that on the teams that you maybe manage or lead or you're a part of. The righteous do their work to help others flourish. It has a, in view the idea of the whole community doing well. The righteous do their work to help others flourish. The, the righteous are concerned with your success, not just their success. And when you work with someone like this, you know that the most, I don't know, enjoyable way to do your work, the most fulfilling maybe is the right way to say it, is to care about the success of others. If it's only ever about you, what does that say about what you believe in terms of the God who is a worker and the way that you are displaying him in the context of your workplace? But man, when you are part of a team where everybody's concerned with the success of everybody else, not just their own thing, that's a beautiful place to be. It's a beautiful environment to work in. If you're not working in an environment like that currently, perhaps you can become the change in that environment by caring about the success of others. There's so many of these Proverbs that can relate to our work. I'm going to give you three. I'm restraining myself to giving you only three. You can apply these to our work. So as you read through Proverbs, just think about it in light of the, the jobs that you do. Proverbs 12, 26 says, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Just think about that. If you're coaching someone, you're caring about them, you're leading them in a really, really helpful way, that's good. That's righteous because you care about their success, not just your own. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. 28.12, when the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Like if you get promoted and people go, I think I have to quit now, <laughs> right? That's a problem, right? We, we probably all worked in an environment like that. Where we're like, oh my gosh, I can't handle if he's my new boss. <sighs> no. When the righteous triumph, there's great glory. When somebody gets promoted who you know has your interest in heart, you, this is awesome. I love that you got that. You're not jealous of it. You think it's great. You can celebrate that alongside them because you know that they care. And so when you're promoted and you're righteous in your workplace, you know that others will celebrate that alongside you. 29.2 says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. This, I believe, is one of the most prominent ways that we can actually bear witness to the importance of our faith in the workplace. 
The way we work says a lot about who we worship. The way we work says a lot about who we worship. When we are formed to be righteous people, as Proverbs is defining it here, our workplace should be better off because we are there. And when people try and figure out why you care about them and you care about their success as well as yours, then you're free to tell them about the God that you serve and the importance of your faith in every facet of your life. Right? It's a great way to mess with people. Like, I really care about you progressing, advancing, and succeeding in this job. And they go, I don't know. That sounds false and phony. But when you live that out day by day, Monday to Friday, or whatever your schedule is, when people know you're that kind of man or woman, they eventually are going to come to you and go, what the heck do you believe? And why are you doing this? And you'll have an answer for them. Hugh Welchel said, the biblical doctrine of work is one of the most powerful means God provides for us to shape and influence culture. This is true because at the end of the day, we live for something more than our work and more than this moment that we're in. And the way that we do our work is the way that we can make that known. It's a beautiful way to model what a Christ-centered life looks like. One of my favorite quotes, you've heard it before, Leslie Newbigin says, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. So when somebody says to you, why are you like this as a boss? Or why are you like this as an employee on the same level as me? Or why are you like this in working for me when your boss asks you? You can answer the question. You believe your faith is integral in the way that you do your job. That's just as true in the 90,000 hours you're going to work as it is anywhere else in your life. So I think we should consider this. Why we work, second. The way we work, and third. How we work, third. How we work. Proverbs teaches us wisdom through comparison and contrast. We've been saying that all the way through this series on Proverbs. Comparison and contrast is the way it's teaching us. And the thing that we need to focus in on here is the contrasting pictures in Proverbs between the diligent and the sluggard. Again, isn't that a phenomenal word? Just sluggard. Don't you think about that? Like when I think of a sluggard, it's just this like thing just inching across the sidewalk. Just slime, disgusting. It's gross. You just hope you don't step on it, right? That's not coming off your shoe. I remember cycling and while well, I was mountain biking and coming down, and there'd be these giant slugs on the trail, and you'd hit them and just hope that you didn't sketch out because you're going down the mountain very fast, and there's giant slugs coming across. You're like, ugh. This is what I think of when I see this word. Okay, The sluggard, the lazy person. Look at Proverbs chapter 6. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? <laughs> when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. In Proverbs, the sluggard is a person who cannot get a project started. Just a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. The sluggard is also a person who can't finish a task. Look at 12.27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Now, some of you don't know what game is because you've never been outside the city. Game is, is an animal that you kill, right? So you go out, you kill the animal, but then you just go, oh, I'm not even going to roast it. It just dies and rots. That's the sluggard. Can't finish a task. 
1924 says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. Look, if you don't have a sense of humor, you can't read Proverbs. <laughs> hey, you make a meal, you dig your hand into it because you're, apparently you don't have chopsticks or a spoon and you dig your hand into it and go, uh. <laughs> you just give up right there. That's the picture of the sluggard. Not only can the sluggard not get anything started, the sluggard can't finish a task. It's a picture of somebody who tackles something but cannot bring it to completion. Like going out and going on a hunt and coming home and letting the meat rot. 22, 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. 26, 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. 14 says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Christ City, there's no lion. Excuse after excuse after excuse start to pile up for the sluggard. The sluggard can't get anything started. Sluggard can't finish it on time. And the sluggard has all the excuses that you would need to understand why it's just not possible. The sluggard rationalizes laziness. And here's what ends up happening. 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The sluggard is the one who sits there and goes, I want more. I want promotion. I want a raise. I want better this and that. I need more perks. Buy me a better laptop. The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Sluggard can't get work going. Sluggard can't get work finished. Sluggard can't just do anything because of excuses. And because of all of these, they crave and are restless in and of themselves. And I just want to wonder how much of our generation's restlessness and anxiety is caused by our inability to stick with something. Our tendency to cower at the obstacles that we encounter at work perhaps is being added to our anxieties rather than just facing them head on, you know, just choosing to toss and turn in our bed like a door on its hinges rather than dealing with the problems that are in front of us. I just wonder how much of our anxieties are because we're craving and craving and craving but not getting things started, not getting things done and making excuses for why it's not going the way we want it to. Don't be a sluggard. Here's why. Laziness in Proverbs is more than a character flaw. Because of what I've already said about the righteous and the wicked, laziness in Proverbs is a moral issue. How can you live a righteous life where you disadvantage yourself to the advantage of others if you're always looking for the easy way out of a situation? The diligent are different. Diligent are built different. 10-4 says a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 22.29, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. 12.24, the hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. The diligent are different. There's a contrast here. Here's what I, here's what I want. This is my desire for us as a church. That like, Everywhere Christ City goes, because you know Christ City is not a building, Christ City is not a, a church, Christ City is the people. We are the people of God. Right? Everywhere that we go, every place of employment that we enter into becomes a place where they just question, what is it that makes you different? You work hard, 
You start projects, you finish them, you're not a person with a long list of excuses. You care about the success of others and the success of this corporation or this institution or whatever it is that you're doing. What if, what if it was looking like that? That's the diligent. I'd love us to lean into this. Another picture of the diligent is in Proverbs 31. This is the virtuous woman who fears the Lord. Proverbs 31, verse 13. She's a diligent laborer. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. I married a diligent woman. I I love this about my wife. It's one of the things that I've always admired about her. She works hard. When we were dating, she worked hard. She started projects, she finished projects, and she wasn't a person with a long list of excuses. She was a diligent woman then, she's a diligent woman now. I love that. Now we've warned the sluggard about the consequences of that action. Let me, let me give you a word of proverbial wisdom here to the diligent as well. Perhaps to the diligent who are taking it too far. Diligence should not be, cons- uh, should not be uh, confused with workaholism. Okay, don't, don't come to me when we find out you're actually just an idolater who's really like believes your whole identity is wrapped up in your success in your workplace. And you come to me and you're like, no, Brad, I'm just diligent. I'm like, no, you're a workaholic. It's damaging people around you. This is a conversation that I've had lots of times. Proverbs does not have a word for workaholic. We have the sluggard and the diligent. These are simply meant to be contrasting virtue and vice, like the righteous and the wicked. But Proverbs does see a point where we wisely rest from our work. Diligence is not workaholism. Proverbs 23.4 Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Here's what it's getting at. Don't wear yourself out to become rich. Be wise enough to restrain yourself in your work. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to rest. Take a day off. Like God who is a worker, who is the model that we have in our vocation, in our workplace. Take a day off. You're actually not that important. (laughs) Some of you are like, what? (laughs) The first time anyone said that to me, that's insane. You're not. You're not that big of a deal. You're not so big a deal that you can't take a day off. The reason you don't take a day off isn't because someone's driving you harder and harder. The reason you don't take a day off is because your whole identity is wrapped up in your work. Glad I got that off my chest. (laughs) You know where I learned that, right? 2014 when I had a burnout. Because I thought I was really, really important. So important I couldn't take a day off. Just so you know. I'm not going to say anything to you that I'm not going to hold myself to as well. I had to recognize, and this is what I said to myself at the time, I had it taped, uh, a sticky note on my mirror. I woke up in the morning and I go in there to brush my teeth and it said, God is God and you are not. That's a good reminder for the overachiever workaholic type, right? Who will justify their workaholism by calling it diligence and service in the kingdom of the Lord. Looks like I got to the heart of it. 
The desisting, the rest, is seen in the creation narrative. Let me take you back there. We already read this. Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay? Diligence is not workaholism. If I had to wager, I would imagine that there are more diligent tending toward workaholics than there are sluggards in our midst. That's, that would... That would be it because we're in Vancouver and you're all people who care about this stuff. It's my guess that we would skew toward the diligence end of the spectrum and maybe drift into the workaholism. Most workaholism is tied to the fact that you've grounded your identity in what you can accomplish and what you can produce and what you can earn. And if that's where your identity is, you're in trouble. That'll consume you. That will not serve you. It will eat you up. See, we follow Jesus, and that means we rest from our work. And we work from a place of rest. Not striving to achieve so that we can become something, but realizing that in Christ, everything that we would ever need has already been done for us. And so whether you are the sluggard or the workaholic, the answer is not just like, you should work harder or you should take a day off. The answer is actually to ground your work in the story of the gospel, in why you work and considering the way that you work and how you work. That, that sounds a lot like the outline of the message. Why you work and the way you work and how you work. Have you considered these in light of your identity in Christ? See, because of the gospel, we are now free to restory or to reimagine our work in light of God's work in the world. It's to find out where your true identity is found. It's to discover that you are whole in Christ, not because your boss patted you on the top of the head and gave you a sick Christmas bonus. Those are good things. But you can be diligent and earn those things. You don't have to be a workaholic. It's understanding your work in light of the larger narrative of God's saving and redeeming and renewing and transforming work in our lives. See, in the Garden of Eden, when our parents first sinned, they chose self-reliance in place of obedience to God, and that's when our work became difficult. And in part of God's judgment on Adam, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So we do our work in a cursed and thorny world. But reimagining our work means that we're mindful that we serve a Lord who has redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. That's what it says in Galatians 3. Reimagining our work means that we're mindful of the fact that Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, wore a crown of thorns upon his head. That points to the promise that he is breaking the curse and he is making all things new. See, we work from a place of having received that promise. And when we understand our jobs in light of God's greater story, we are free to rest from our work and we are free in our identity in Christ to then work from a place of eternal rest. Let's stand and respond. 